Hello, Susan. Thank you for making this time to meet with me to discuss the question of collective bargaining and gender equalities at work. Let me start off by asking you to just tell me about your current role at the ILO and how this really equips you very well to comment on the effects of industrial relations and collective bargaining on gender equalities at work globally and particularly in South Africa. Thank you so much, Felicity, for inviting me to this podcast. I'm working as a lead researcher at the ILO on industrial relations and collective bargaining. And in that capacity, we've conducted a major research program over the last couple of years, looking at collective agreements and practices in some 80 countries in all regions of the world, South Africa being one of those countries. The results will be published in an edited volume by the ILO ELIRA and Edward Alger next year. And some will also feature in its flagship reports, the ILO is bringing out one next month on collective bargaining and in 2023 on essential workers. So I might say also that other than my own research interests, I have also had practical experience, both as a mediator in South Africa many years ago, and most recently in briefing trade unions and management at the ILO on some of the challenges that senior female colleagues are facing with the hope that they'll sit down together and take joint action. I recently also advised teachers in my daughter's school who had their collective agreement set aside. So I would claim both personal and professional expertise. Great. Well, the perfect person to talk us through this topic. So tell me a bit about how the collective bargaining agenda has evolved in respect of gender inequality over the years. More women, as we know, are now in the workforce than, say, even 10 years ago, both as managers and as workers. And more public sector workers around the world enjoy collective bargaining rights, a large majority of whom are female. So one important change has been in the membership of employers, organizations and trade unions who often bargain. In fact, for the first time in 2019, the female trade union density rate was higher than the male trade union density rate. What that essentially means is that the proportion of women as a share of all women trade union members was higher than it was for men. So if more women are in leadership, sitting at the bargaining table on both sides, both employers and trade unions, and representing the interests of an increasingly female membership, the bargaining agendas can be expected and have evolved to address issues like equal opportunities, the gender pay gap, maternity protection, working time arrangements that enable women to balance work and family responsibilities. Because yes, women still account for the largest share of unpaid work if one looks at time, cue studies, and finally measures to address sexual harassment and violence at work. Right. And in South Africa, we've recently had a new code of conduct issued concerning harassment at work, which is particularly interesting in this regard. So tell me what role can collective bargaining play in addressing inequalities? How can inequalities be addressed in the collective bargaining process? 
let me mention four ways that we've seen as a result of our studies of both, as I said, looking at collective agreements, but also looking at practices in different countries. Firstly, as a primary subject of collective bargaining remains wages. Collective bargaining can and has been a powerful means to address the gender pay gap. And in fact, a number of studies consistently find that where you have a higher share of workers or of employees covered by collective agreements or who have their wages and working time determined by a collective agreement, you see a smaller pay gap between men and women doing the same job. But secondly, there's also the issue of men and women doing different jobs, but where there is an undervaluation of women's work and those in female occupations. And we see this most clearly in occupations such as healthcare and social care work. We've seen that collective agreements and collective bargaining practices have been looking at revaluing that work through job evaluation exercises so that men and women are paid the same, not only for the same job, but also for different jobs that have equal value. The third I would say, is the way in which collective bargaining looks at ensuring maternity protection so that women don't have to lose their jobs when they fall pregnant, as well as parental leave and working time arrangements so that workers, both women and men, can balance work and unpaid care responsibilities. And just to say, I think we've seen an uptick in collective agreements for parental leave for both parents, uh, particularly paternity leave, so that men can also share some of those care responsibilities. But collective agreements are also addressing issues like care services, having a crash on site, as well as leave for school meetings or when a child is sick. And over the last two years during the pandemic, this was clearly really important because we saw a number of women having to leave the workforce because they had to take care of sick family members or because schools were closed. We saw collective agreements being signed that in different ways, either through working time arrangements or flexible leave provisions, made sure that those women could stay in the workforce. And then the fourth way I would say that collective agreements are addressing gender equality is by addressing the issue of violence and sexual harassment at work. In some instances, also clauses in agreements that are extending support to victims of domestic violence. The clauses that we've been looking at range from clarification on what constitutes harassment, definitions around sexual harassment, to awareness and training, and then finally procedures for addressing complaints and protecting victims of either harassment and violence in the workplace, but also domestic violence. Right. Well, that certainly does sound like an expanded range of ideas and options than what I remember back in the early 80s when it was really only maternity leave that was Mm -hmm. under discussion. So that certainly is very good to hear. And Susan, in relation to South African employers and trade unions, do you have any suggestions, particularly in that context, you know, for what they might do in their forthcoming collective bargaining round, given your awareness of the particular needs and pressures on women in South African workplaces? I would say the number one is have women in your leadership and at the bargaining table. Ensure that negotiations are informed. What is the gender pay gap in your particular enterprises? What are the interests of female members of trade unions? What are the barriers and constraints that they are facing, such as affordable childcare? Something that comes out of our study 
is the really important role that employers' organizations, but I would say also trade unions, play in advising enterprises, sharing information across the sector with enterprises on best practices elsewhere. So really that benchmarking facilitation, if you like, function, uh, which can have a real effect on gender inequalities at work. And the final, I would say, is training and awareness raising, which I think I mentioned before. Employers' organizations and trade unions, as well as I think organizations organizations like the Labour Research Services in South Africa are already doing this. But of course, there's much more that can be done. Right. Well, thank you very much. I think the points you've made are extremely helpful in informing the collective bargaining agenda for this year. And we hope that there are greater successes on this front in the interest both of employers and trade unions and effective working lives. Thank you, Felicity, very much. Thank you.